Amen. 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 Please have a seat. Amen. Youth and children, you are free to go downstairs. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Today I'm going to continue on the Sermon on the Mount. If you've been um, going along with me, I've been looking at what is in the Sermon on the Mount, why it was compiled the way it was, its importance. And you have to understand, the Sermon on the Mount is something that is placed at the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel for a purpose and for a reason. And in it, there is so much. But I always remind people that the sermon probably went on for an hour or two, maybe even more. But when you read it, you'll read it in 10 minutes. So when the Spirit guided Matthew to record what was said on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew just didn't record the main points. He recorded the main points, but he also put them into a structure. And that structure was in the imagery of climbing a mountain and coming down from that mountain. And at the very beginning, you see that it says that the crowds followed Jesus up the mountain. And at the very end of the sermon, so the crowds followed Jesus down the mountain. And so Matthew works on this imagery. And today we're actually going to be talking about specifically about the descent because in the last sermon we talked about being at the peak. What happens when we reach the apex of the mountain and what we find there. But we can't always stay on the mountain. So Matthew, guided by the Spirit, is talking about what happens when we descend from the mountaintop. What's there, what's important, and why it's important. And you see, because descending has its own risks. And it was interesting because this morning, my wife and I pulled up in our car and I said, there's a coyote. And it's walking across just our lawn here where the parked car's here on the side. And I see a woman walking her dog and there's this coyote coming towards her and about to cross the street. And there's another guy walking their dog. And as soon as she sees it, she gets startled, but she starts to yell at the coyote. And the coyote sort of stops for a second. This is right here at the entrance. And the other person starts yelling at the woman. And so you know what this woman does? She starts chasing the coyote. (laughs) Like, thank goodness the coyote saw the other person behind them and said, okay, there's two people here and two dogs. I better get out out of here. But we all know what happens when you're by yourself with your dog and a coyote comes by. If they're hungry, they're going to go and try and take a bite out of your dog. And, but this woman that didn't even think about it, she just ran after, and I see her running with her dog and the coyotes going, I'm going, wow. You know, sometimes we run into things that make no sense. And we think we're doing the right thing, we're going about it the right way, and we don't even realize the danger we're getting ourselves into. Well, going down the mountain is like that. Going down the mountain is like that. And you see, the mountain that we're talking about here is, and, and Matthew is, is being very specific, you see. Matthew is trying to teach us, you know, the law was given to Moses on a mountain, right? Now, Matthew is giving us, well, here's a new law, people, and it's very different than what Moses gave you. This is something far greater than what Moses could ever give you. And so what ends up happening is, is you have this mountain 
imagery, and you have Jesus coming up to the mountain, and you have Matthew giving us this understanding of what's happening. And what Jesus is doing is amplifying the purpose and meaning of what the law stood for. That the law that was recorded and that the Jewish people were following was just a mere small little fraction of what God's intent was for his people. Just like Paul said, it was just to make sin known, not to guide us in any way. What, follow the 613 laws and you think that you're good? That's not how it works. That's not how it works. And so what we have is we have in Matthew 5.1, everybody, and we've, we've tracked this. We talked about the Beatitudes, and it's really about being different. Poor in spirit. Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. What does that mean? It means that you realize, that you recognized how poor you are spiritually. Even being a Christian, how poor you are spiritually, how much actually you're in need of God. And the irony behind being a Christian is the closer you walk with Christ, the greater the need you understand you have. The greater the gap there is between you and the perfection and holiness of God. It's totally the opposite of what people think. And that's what the Beatitudes is. It's about being different. And if you follow the Beatitudes, we talked about you're going to be weird. People are going to find you weird because you're not behaving like everybody else. They found Jesus weird. And then we, got, we start climbing the mountain and Jesus says, if you follow the Beatitudes, that's your ethos. That's your, way, your, your character for living. You're going to be a salt and light because people are going to notice you. You're going to be different. And as you start to climb, Christ starts to take the law and says, I came to fulfill the law and he starts to amplify it. And he starts to say, well, you've heard that if you commit murder, well, I say if you're angry against your brother, you're, you're bound to judgment like you've murdered. He's amplifying what we should do as Christians. It's not about rules. It's nothing to do about rules. He amplifies it in so many different ways. He says, you know, you've heard it said that if you commit adultery, it goes, well, if you look at someone lustfully, you've committed adultery. He's amplifying it for us. It's not good enough anymore. Here in this sermon, Jesus introduces us to turning the other cheek. When somebody slaps you, he's giving us a whole new way of thinking and doing things. Completely different. And as we climb, it's Christ is the difference. We begin to learn that it is him who's the difference, not us. And that we can't amplify, we can't understand what it means to be a Christian, to go over and beyond just the basics of following rules, unless we recognize that Christ is the one that gives us a difference and amplifies that difference. And at the peak, which is where we stopped last time, at the peak is where we find the reason for our journey, the place of our strength, which is a relationship with God. And at the peak of that sermon, Matthew records Jesus teaching how to pray. Today, what happens when we're on the peak and it's now time to get down? You see, we can't stay on the mountaintop all the time. We can't. 
We can pray, we can seek God, we can try and live a life, but we can't stay on top of the mountain all the time. We have to descend the mountain. We have to descend the mountain. Why? Because you can't grow crops on the mountaintop. You can't live life on the mountaintop. You go to the mountaintop for your relationship with the Lord on a daily basis. But it's in the valley where the water flows. We just sang it. It's in the valley where the farmers work, where they plow the fields. And we are asked to climb down the mountain. But you see, climbing down the mountain brings its own threats and dangers. The interesting thing about this passage, this this part of of the Sermon on the Mount, which starts off at the end of Matthew 6 and goes right into Matthew 7, is at the very end of it, at the very end of it, there is a scripture that I feel many have only scratched the surface of its meaning. And this is the scripture. It says, after, after you're descending, Jesus is saying, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. Remember when you're climbing the mountain, when you're on this side, Christ is saying, you've heard it say this way, but I say this. The parallel to that is don't do this, don't do that, don't worry. And at the end of all those worries, all those warnings, he gives us this. Matthew 7, verse 6. Do not give to dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Do not give to dogs what is holy or pearls to pigs. It's a very strong passage. Almost sounds condemning. And probably a lot of the the times that you've heard this scripture used is talking about, you know, relating to other people. But it goes far beyond that. Because you see, this passage is within the context of the Sermon on the Mount. It is specifically taken from the sermon that Jesus gave for I don't know how long, a couple hours, picked out and positioned right at the bottom of this descent that Matthew is taking us through. There's a purpose behind it. A deeper purpose. And you see, dogs, yes, dogs were seen as something that wasn't very pleasant in those times. I mean, there were working dogs. But the dogs that they're referring to here, the dogs that we're talking about here are the wild dogs. The wild dogs that roam the wilderness in packs. And dogs were seen as unclean, but they also were seen as very much undisciplined. See, dogs were the animal that was undisciplined. It had run away from its master. It had gone into the wilderness, joined up with another pack of dogs, and runs around wild, just like wolves, looking for food, raiding farms, causing trouble. The dog was the wild animal. And it's used in the Bible to personify wildness. The pig is different. The pig is also an unclean animal, 
And it personifies something different. It personifies laziness and sensuality. I just want to eat and lie in the mud. Just give me food and relax. I don't care about the pen. You see, the dog doesn't want the pen. The dog wants to run wild and do whatever it wants. The pig doesn't care. Put me in a box. Just give me food and let me run, lie around in the mud and have fun. The pig represents sensuality. And so you have these two metaphors here that Jesus gives us. Dogs, undisciplined, and pigs, lazy and sensual. And then he says, make sure you don't give what is holy into such a situation. What is holiness? Holiness is that what we have which is separated unto God, consecrated unto God. That is holiness. And pearls, pearls are used symbolically, and we're going to get to some scripture on that, symbolically as something so precious that you have found, so meaningful. What is so precious to you? What is so precious to you? Because that which you find that is holy and precious, are you undisciplined with? Are you lackadaisical, lazy with? Because that might be the position that you might find yourself in. And this is, this is the crux of the descent. It's a warning. But let's get into the whole meaning of the descent. But before we go there, the descent of a mountain is actually a very interesting um, analogy that I, I want to look at. You know, when I was a kid, and you guys probably remember this, um, and the type of mountain, we're not talking about these vertical mountains where you've got to use all these gear, these free climbers. That's not the type of mountain that, that Matthew is thinking here. A mountain is one that you can walk up. It's steep, but you can walk up, right? And when I was a kid, and we used to walk up these mountains. You used to get tired, you know, get to the front. To the... But the one thing about the mountain is that you can run back down the mountain, you know? And when you run down the mountain, it's almost like it feels effortless, right? So you start running. It feels like gravity is pulling you. It's a lot easier than going up. You know, and you start to have fun. I remember running down, you know, hills, very steep hills. But the one thing that I learned is sometimes if it's too steep and you go too fast, you fall on your face. And you roll and you roll and you roll until you stop. And then you go, this wasn't so fun. It's interesting because I, I, want, I want to take that and I want to say, what would a mountain climber say about descending a mountain? And so I got this off the internet about somebody who climbs and descends, and this is what they said. The first thing you've got to deal with is tired muscles. You get tired because during the ascent, you're using all your energy. And then when you're having to go down, you've spent most of your energy trying to get to the top. And so those same tired legs are the ones that you use trying to get down. The second thing is, a lot of times, we make such an effort to get to the top that we, we put all our effort into it, we put all of our energy and strength, and we go beyond our limits to get to the top sometimes. And then we know what our destination is, but it's exhausting. It's exhausting. And what we forget is the mountaintop is only the midpoint of the climb. The climb includes the descent. 
he goes on to say that with, when you fall, when you climb, as you're climbing, when you fall, it's a shorter distance than when you fall and when you're going down. You see, when you're, when you're climbing, when you fall, you're basically falling into something that's right there that you can actually brace. But when you're going in the opposite direction, there's nothing to brace you. And so if you go down aimlessly and you fall, you end up like me when I went down that hill. You fall and there's nothing to brace and you can fall and roll and roll and roll. And this is what you might find yourself in when you are in a position in your Christian walk and you're descending down the mountain and you don't realize that there's danger leak, you know, approaching you when you're going down the mountain. Well, what kind of dangers, Pastor Julia? Well, there's lots of dangers. Do you think that the enemy doesn't know that you've been trying to climb the mountain? Do you think the enemy doesn't know that you're trying to reach the peak? That you're trying to increase your, your relationship with the Lord? He's going to be there to try and make sure that that experience after you've reached the mountaintop is going to be something that you would never want to experience again. That is his goal. But we as Christians have to be wise. Because when we have those mountaintop experiences, we need to come off those mountains in a way that we can now give our lives to God. And those experiences are very important. The baptism we're going to have next week is a mountaintop experience for those people who are coming to be baptized. Those six people are taking an act of faith, a step of faith. That's their mountaintop for that week. And after that, I've heard many stories of many times of challenges that come after that baptism. How we come down is so important. The other thing that, that this mountain climber says is visibility. When you're going up the mountain, it's very clear what you're trying to do. Very clear. But it's a lot harder to see when you're going down the mountain because there's a lot more that can distract you. A lot more that can distract you. So why the descent? Well, you have to go down the mountain. See, God wants to call us to the mountaintop, those mountaintop experiences where we seek him, where we actually go and we try to be with him and we're praying and we're seeking him and something wonderful and beautiful happens in our life. Maybe we learn something. It wasn't easy. We start to learn that human effort really doesn't help. It just exhausts us. Maybe we learn a new aspect in life of how we should behave. Maybe our attitude needs to change. And so when we start to apply what God has taught us, what happens? What happens? And this is what Jesus is trying to teach us. And here we have the scripture that we're going to go to today. Matthew chapter 6, verses 16. And it starts off with the end of the prayer. And this is what Jesus says right off the top. He says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. The first thing that Jesus says is when you're descending the mountain, after you've had an experience with God, after you've learned something from God, be careful, don't be like the hypocrites. They disguise, they disguise themselves as being perfect and holy and that they've got it all there. They've been a Christian for a long time. 
They've been coming to church every week. I've got my act together. I don't need anybody to tell me what to do. They come, and they think that they're better than others. And Jesus says, when you come after a mountaintop experience, that temptation is real and it's there. You start to become overconfident because you've actually learned something. Or he goes on to say in verse 19, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth because this is what happens. A lot of times when we've gone through a trial, let's say, we've gone through, we've got our jobs. You know, we've been, I've been hearing about some young adults who've been praying on Wednesdays and a lot of them got their jobs the first time. Beautiful, beautiful testimony. But what's the descent? They start to work. They start to make money. And what does Jesus say? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. You see, these are actions, outward actions that we have when we start to take our eyes off of Jesus. We're starting to descend down the mountain and our backs is towards the mountaintop. And so what ends up happening? Distractions. We start to become overconfident. We start to look at life. Oh, I want to make more money. I want to have a better life. I want to do... And none of those things are wrong. It's not wrong to actually want it to work. In fact, that's what we're asked to do. It's not wrong for us to actually go and, and want to serve God and, and do more. But is that where our focus is? Because if that's where our focus is, that's where the problem starts to come. And so Jesus is warning us. What are you doing putting all your effort into seeking treasures here on earth? What is your treasure? Is it money? Is it fame? Is it recognition? And what does Jesus say? But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Treasures in heaven. <laughs> There's this joke I'd like to share with you. It's Catholic, I believe, because of the way it's written, but it, uh, it sort of illustrates the point here. And, and this joke goes this way. There was a, a, a man. He knew he was about to die. He was a very, very wealthy man. And he was worried about leaving all his money behind, thinking that he needed to take some of it with him. So he's praying and praying and praying, and he's, he's praying that he'd be allowed to take some of his treasure with him to heaven. So he's praying, you know, God, you know, you've blessed me with so much on this earth. Can't I just take some of this blessing with me and bring it to heaven with me? So God sends an angel down. And the angel says, God heard your prayer. But he says, no, you can't take anything with you. And he says, please go back to the Lord and say, please, can't I take just even one suitcase of some of my treasure? So the angel says, okay. Well, let me go back. So he goes back. says, this guy is very stubborn. He wants to bring at least one suitcase. So okay, the, the Lord says, okay, well, he hasn't learned his lesson yet, but he will. Tell him he can bring back one suitcase of his treasure. All right, so the angel goes back, goes to the man and says, okay. The Lord says you can bring one suitcase. So you know what the guy does? He goes in his house. He finds the biggest suitcase he can find. Then he gets all his gold and shoves all his gold in that suitcase. And then when he dies, you know, like I said, this is very sort of Catholic imagery, but it's okay. There's a point to this. He brings the suitcase with him. And he's at the pearly gates. And there's Peter. And Peter's going, What's that? 
it's a suitcase. I brought something. He goes, you're not allowed to do that. We don't allow that here. He goes, well, ask the angel. I asked the Lord, and he said I can bring one suitcase. And so Peter said, okay, let me take a look. So Peter opens up the suitcase and goes, you brought pavement? You get it? There's nothing on this earth that can compare to what heaven's going to be like. The streets are going to be paved with gold. With gold. There's nothing. You see, when we start to worry about things here on earth, what we make our treasure, we can make our children our treasure, right? Oh, I've been there. I've done that. And we start to think that human ever, we stop to think. We start to think, hey, we can do it on our own. You know, we've had those mountaintop experiences. We've achieved something in life. And we start to depend on ourselves. And that's when things can go wrong. That's usually the first step of where things can go wrong. So Jesus goes on to teach us in verse 22, the eye is, lamp, is, a, the eye is a lamp of the body. And he warns us that if the eye is healthy and is looking at the right things, then that is okay. But if the eye is not healthy and is looking at the wrong things, then darkness starts to creep in. And so we have to be very careful what we look at. And he goes on to say, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. And really money is wealth, whatever you treasure, wherever your heart is. You have to make a choice. You can't serve both. You can't serve both. And you see, this isn't just one thing that happens once. Those mountain experiences that we have go on and on and on throughout our life because we're always climbing mountains and descending into valleys. We go through different seasons in life. And through the different victories or trials where we learn something, sometimes after that storm, we, we get complacent, right? Things calm down and we get complacent. And this is where things start to go wrong. And this is what Matthew is writing about. He's really writing about us being careful, careful of what we put our eyes on. Because here's what happens. We start to take our eyes off of, off of Christ and we start to put our eyes onto things, then those things become our focus. And all of a sudden, something else starts to set in. Something else starts to set in. And this is what Jesus is teaching. But I, I've, got, I've got this other, this other one. Max Lucado did this story. It's a short story. It's not longer than the other one. But Max Lucado wrote this story. And I'm just paraphrasing what he says. And he says, there was this one guy once, and he was anxious about everything. He was worried about everything in life, what was going to happen next, what was going to happen to his money. He was just worried about everything in life. So the anxiety was killing him because, you know, stress kills you, anxiety kills you. So he thought, what am I going to do? He goes, well, I got a great idea. I'm going to hire somebody to be anxious for me. So I'm going to hire somebody, they can be anxious for me, and then that way I don't have to be anxious and I don't have to worry about anything. So he finds somebody crazy enough to say, okay, I'm going to worry for you. So whatever your worry is, give it to me and I'll worry for you. And, and the guy said, great, I've got, I've, got, I've got it made. I don't have to worry about it. stress, all those issues that come with stress. I have somebody, I'm going to hire them, and, they, and they're going to do this for me. So the guy says, okay, but you have to pay me 200000 a year. Fine, I'll pay 200000 a year for you to be my anxiety. Then the guy says, okay, 
Let's start. Now, how are you going to pay me? Where are you going to get the 200000 from? And he says, well, that's your problem. That's, that's your anxiety now. <laughs> but it isn't that easy, is it? We can't just give it away to somebody. And you see, when we start taking our eyes off of God and we start, we start thinking and becoming overconfident and we start worrying about the things, where they come from in life, all of a sudden, we start to become anxious. We start to become worried. We go down that path of being worried. And Jesus tells us in verse 25, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. And he goes on and on and on in this chapter saying he provides for the birds and the clothing. Isn't some of the things that God has created far more beautiful than even what Solomon wore? Don't be anxious. Don't worry. But that is so hard for us to do. That's so hard for us to do. Look what it says in, in verse 32. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. God knows you need these things. He knows you need them before you even know you realize you need them. And verse 30 says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. You see, you might have read this in Paul's epistle, but Paul got this from Jesus. It was Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And that's why Paul wrote in the epistle what he wrote in Philippians. He knows what our needs are. He can provide. Are you able to trust God? See, it's very easy when you're on that mountaintop, you've just overcome something in life, or maybe you've, you've really reached a certain relationship stage that you've always wanted to have. Maybe your prayer life has gotten to where you need it to be. You thought you needed it to be. And things just look good, you know, all is well. And then you take your eyes off of the Lord because you think all is well and you start getting anxious. You start getting anxious about things and, this, and then what happens? Oh, you start getting anxious about tomorrow. It's not enough to be anxious about what I need. Well, what's coming tomorrow? Your anxiety can start going, well, tomorrow things might get worse. And so you let anxiety and worry start to take over. And that descent that descent can even cause even more problems. Many of you know who Charles Spurgeon is, but he had these, these words to say. Anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows. I'll say this again. Anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows. So don't think that being anxious today is going to do anything, anything, about what's coming tomorrow. Tomorrow could be a great day. Tomorrow could be a miserable day. But being anxious about it today is not going to change anything about it tomorrow. 
he goes on to say that being anxious today only empties you of your strength today. It only empties us of our strength. So here we are, we're going down the mountain, and Matthew is teaching us. You know, we can start taking our eyes off of Christ. We start putting our eyes onto other things. Anxiety starts to step in. He's really talking about human nature, right? Jesus is really teaching. He knows us well. He created us. And so all of a sudden, we start going down, and Jesus comes to the next do not. But before that, I have a, another, another good little story for you. Another good little story for you. There was a guy by the name of Bishop Potter, okay? This is, this is an old story. It's back in the days where there were no planes, and if you wanted to go and go somewhere overseas, you had to take a ship, okay? So here's, here's, a, here's a story. So Bishop Potter was sailing for Europe on one of the great transatlantic ocean liners. When he went aboard, he found that another passenger was to share the cabin with him. So a lot of times during these voyages, to have your own cabin was very expensive, so it was normal for you to share a cabin with somebody else. After going to see the accommodations, he came up to the purser's desk and inquired if he could leave his gold watch and other valuables in the ship safe. And so the purser said, sure, you can do that. You can leave your valuables with me. He explained, this is the guy by the name of Bishop Potter, he explained that, the, that ordinarily he never used this service. Okay? But he had been in the cabin and met the man who was occupying the other berth. So here... So here's what's happening, right? So he's on this ship. He's having to share this with this person. He's in this cabin, and he sees this other person, and he goes, ooh, this guy doesn't look very trustworthy. If I leave my stuff in here, he's going to take my treasure. So I better put it somewhere safe. So this is where he goes to the, to the person on the boat to say, please secure my valuables. And so... Judging from his appearance, he was afraid that he might not be a very trustworthy person. The purser accepted the responsibility for the valuables and remarked, It's all right, Mr. Bishop. I'll be very glad to take care of them for you. The other man in your cabin also felt the same way and gave me all his valuables. Chapter 7, verse 1, Judge not that you not be judged, for the judgment you pronounce will be judged, and with the same measure you will see it will be measured to you. Judge not. We are so quick to judge. You know, we start to take our eyes off of Jesus. We get anxious about stuff in life. We start to become very critical, right? Critical of others, critical of ourselves, critical of everything. And there's a warning, especially when we're being critical of others, right? There's a warning of watch what you do when you're being critical of others because you're not dealing with the plank in your own eye. And you see, you can't see the plank in your eye because you've turned your back and you've forgotten to keep your eyes on Christ. And this is what they're trying to teach us. And this doesn't just happen, you know, I was talking with the baptismal candidates downstairs and I was saying, this isn't just something that happens to young Christians, this happens to very mature Christians. I say our battles don't end when we've been with the Lord for 30 years. 
They don't. I've been with the Lord for 30 years. I've been serving him probably 25 of those 30 years in an official capacity of some kind in the church. I have gone and been educated. I spent 15 years studying scripture, everything. I've reached probably the highest level I can in terms of education as a minister. But I tell you one thing. I am still as vulnerable as anyone else in this room to falling into sin. And all my efforts mean nothing, mean nothing if I take my eyes off of Christ. Nothing. You know what those efforts do? They just made me a little bit more efficient. I can do things faster than I used to. That's all. It's practice. But they mean nothing. John Wesley, many of you know him, have heard of him, and he, and he talks about an incident. This is well on in his years. And we, as even as, as preachers sometimes, can get very critical of others. And he, he talks about one situation where he did. And so he had gotten to a situation where he wanted to create a program at his church and he was asking for people to donate and there was this new person who had come into the church and he knew that this person looked like they had a good job they they could uh, you know provide some money you know and they'd become a Christian recently and so he noticed that they gave very little very little so John Wesley start thinking like we've poured our time our effort into this person we've done everything we can to try and help this person and here's such a great cause and they're giving so little to this cause and the man sensed it and Wesley knowledgeable experienced preacher of many decades even criticized the man the man was a young Christian. So the man humbly went to see Wesley. And he said, he explained that before his conversion, he had run up many bills. In other words, he had gotten himself into trouble with debt, with overspending. Now by skimping on everything and buying nothing for himself, he was paying off all his creditors one by one. He says that he was eating nothing but water and cabbage and parsnips for weeks. You see, Christ had put on his heart that he needed to get rid of all those creditors, pay them all back. And when he had explained this to John Wesley, John Wesley broke down and asked for his forgiveness. See, sometimes we judge very easily. We look at the person, you know, some of you might look at me and say, this is a guy with a tie, what does he know? He doesn't know about life, he just wears a tie and a suit. Or the tie and a suit guy might look at somebody who doesn't wear suits and says, what, these guys are undisciplined, you know, they don't know what it is to be disciplined and, and do things in the right way. 
See, we're very close to judge, right? Quick to judge. We are. We're very quick to judge. And even experienced people such as John Wesley is quick to judge. But that young Christian man was doing the right thing. He was climbing his mountain. He was doing what the Lord had put on his heart. And he was doing the right thing. And so don't you ever think that because of your abilities and your strengths and your experience that you've got it made. You see, when we start to criticize others and criticize things, we start down getting down to a position into a situation that is very, very difficult. And see, as we look at what Matthew has been writing, as we look at what happened after you've reached the top of the mountain when Jesus taught us the Lord's Prayer and we've been going down, you know what all these don'ts are? They're just a selection of a few. There could have been many more that Jesus gave. But you know what the central theme is? Me, myself, and I. That's the central theme. You see, whether it's treasures or anxiety, when we take our eyes off of God and we start to put our eyes on us and our situation and where we are and who we are and and what we want to be rather than what Christ wants us to be, that's when trouble starts to happen. That's descending the mountain in danger. We start to worry about ourselves. We, We look to how much we can accumulate or and, and accumulating of things, whether it's knowledge or, or treasure, or whatever it is. You know what that really is? It's a selfish way of trying to prop yourself up above others. That's really what it is. Or the conversely being judging. It's really doing the exact same thing in the reverse way. It's putting others down below you so that you can feel better. You see, when we want to build ourselves up or put others down, we're doing the same thing. It's all about me, myself, and I. And that is the danger of running down a mountain. That is a danger of not understanding what it means when you actually have to actually trudge through in life and really start to become the Christian that God has called you to be. You see, when Jesus said you've got to turn the other cheek, that's going to happen. When Jesus said, you know, you've heard it said about anger, it's going to happen. You're going to get angry. You're going to get so angry to a point that you didn't realize how angry you can get. And Jesus is saying, that's no better than murder. You might even be in a situation where you say, wow, there's somebody at work looks so good. You get into these thoughts and these thoughts take over and you're less, but I didn't do anything. Nothing really happened. Jesus said, you've already crossed the line. You see, when we start putting our focus on us, we're not ready for those moments because those moments are really those moments of trial and battle. Going down the mountain what Matthew's trying to tell us is that the things in life that come at us when we're put into a path of being the soldier that God has called us to, 
those things are going to come. Those trials are going to come, and we need to be ready for them. But we're not going to be ready if we're worried about us, worried about others, or our position in life. That's not going to happen. Second Peter, sorry, actually First Peter chapter 2. So what is it that we need to do? What is it that we should do to avoid being caught in that situation? First of all, it's recognizing who we are and who Christ is in our relationship in that. First Peter chapter 2 verse 4 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, as you come to him, you who are Christian, you who are seeking Christ, as you come to him, look at who this is. This is a living stone, Jesus Christ. He is alive today. He is with the Father, and he is here with us in through the Spirit. He is a living stone. And guess what? He is chosen, and he is precious. Is he precious to you? How precious is Christ to you? How precious is his teachings to you? How precious are they? Because it goes on in verse 5 to say, you yourselves are living stones and are being built up as a spiritual house. You see, climbing the mountain, going down the mountain, is a process of being built up. You are being built into a spiritual house. The people beside you are part of that house. verse 9, he goes on to say, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. You are special. You are special. In verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. You know what he's saying? He goes, when you become a Christian, we have to start giving up certain things. We have to start thinking about things that worry, other people worry about. And it's hard. Trust me, it's hard. It would have been hard for those young adults who are looking for work. That is not easy. But they came out to the church on Wednesday night seeking God in prayer. They were climbing the mountain. That's not easy. But we are being built up when we do that. And what we do afterwards is probably far more important. Far more important. You see, this takes us back to the scripture of pigs and dogs. And Peter talks about this actually in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, I believe. And he says it's actually worse for us as Christians who have climbed the mountains and learned to descend the mountains to allow ourselves to take on the role of a dog or a pig. Because in it, there's an old proverb that says that a dog returns to its vomit 
and a swine to its mud. And, he's, and Peter's saying, we're worse off. We're worse off. But here's the hope. You see, we've had our mountain moment. And what did Matthew do? At the top of the mountain, he put the most important thing that Jesus taught in that sermon was the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. And if we look at the Lord's Prayer, we can see what he's trying to tell us. And it's the same thing what he's trying to tell us here. What does the Lord's Prayer start off with? Our Father. Acknowledging him and only him. Our Father who art in heaven. What does it say? then say, hallowed be thy name. Holy are you, Lord. The next thing is, after acknowledging who God is, is your kingdom come. You see, is your prayer life like that? Is your prayer life the life of a prayer where you're acknowledging God first and putting him first above all things? Even with all your troubles and problems and strife and persecutions, are you putting him first and calling for his kingdom to come? And then it says, your will be done, not mine. See what Jesus is teaching us? He's teaching us that it's not about what we ask for that's important. Well, and he wants us to ask for things as children. He does. He wants us to ask. But he wants us to put things in a proper order. Are we putting God first? His will first? Are we worried about his kingdom? What he's doing in your life and doing in other people's lives? Are you worried and concerned about things that are distracting you? Are you realizing that God is so big and so mighty and that he's got everything already laid out for you that you don't have to worry? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then comes our needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Do you see that? It's at the very end. And you see, when we start to put God first and worry about, well, Lord, what is it that you want in my life? Lord, what is it that you're trying to do in the church? How can I be there? How can I help? What are my gifts? What do I have that I can give to others? What gifts do you want me? Do you want me to learn? Do you want me to read the Bible more often? Do you want me to, to, to join a Bible study? What is it that you want me to do? Your will be done, not my own. I could have just lost my job. Am I praying that first? Coming up to the anniversary of literally that my dad died one year ago exactly. I have no question in my mind that he is with the Lord. God comes first. God comes first. In my tradition, I should typically be wearing black for a year, mourning. In my tradition at the anniversary, I should be visiting his grave and putting everything 
aside. But that's not how God wants us to live. That's a worldly way of thinking. If I put God first, if I put his will first, I begin to understand, my dad doesn't need me to wear black for an entire year. He doesn't need me to visit his graveside. That's the old body that's gone. And right now, that old body is probably not looking too good anyway. Why would I want to go visit it anyway? I know where he is, and I can't wait to go see him. You see, when we put God first, all these things, all these expectations, all these things that we're asked to to look for, they're all gone. They're all gone. You see, here's, here's the whole sum of coming down the mountain. If you can orchestrate your way down the mountain, In other words, if you can navigate yourself in this world in a way where you don't fall into its traps, you can take what Jesus taught us in the Beatitudes, being poor in spirit, being merciful. You can take what Jesus taught us about amplifying our understanding of what he wants us to be in this life. And we can focus on that and not focus on what the expectations of the world are, I mean, yes, you have to go to work. Yes, you have to pay your bills and things like that. But if we can stay focused on God and on those things, that'll protect us from stumbling. See, we stumble when we start to focus on us. Our struggles become amplified when we start to put focus on us. I'm not saying that it's bad to go that going through hardships is because you've done something bad, far from it. Circumstances in life come at us. But if you want to wallow in the pity, guess what? You're not focused on God. There are people in my family that I cry out to God for him to save. That's not the first thing out of my mouth when I pray. That's not where my first focus is. Because as soon as I start to put my focus on God, that he's in control, that he knows what he's doing, that he holds the future, that he is stronger than anything on this earth that could do to do to us, that he knows what my needs are, then when I come to start to pray for my family members, things start to fall into place. You, You know what I mean? And it's not just in prayer life, it's actually in how we live. Are you living that way? And so what are we learning from Matthew? We're learning that if God can orchestrate us to do his will, that is is our ultimate desire, isn't it? But here's the point, here's the point. You have to orchestrate your way down the mountain before God can orchestrate his will in your life. What does that mean? That means that you and your relationship with God, you've got to get that right. Every day, every second. 
And you've got to realize that you have to apply what he has taught you. It's just not getting to the mountain. You see, the mountaintop, when you're descending and you're, and you're not applying what you've learned, you're not applying what he's called you to do, you're not applying maybe the gift that he's given you, you're going down the mountain blind, focused on self. And the Bible is, is true, right? All of us are part of the body. Let me just use that as an example. All of us are part of the body, aren't we? All of us have a purpose in the body, don't we? Doesn't God say that he's got, he gives us gifts to use in that body? And we all have different gifts? My last question to you, are you using them? And do you know what they are? I'm just giving you this as an example. Giving you this as an example. If God has called you to pray, pray. If God has called you to work with children, don't worry about the fact that you may have to take some time on Saturday nights to prepare. Yeah, you might have to give up some Netflix. You know? Maybe Wednesday night you like to get home, tired, middle of the week. But if God has put it on your heart, What are you doing? Are you letting the problems of life, the treasures of life, take the focus off of Christ? And before God can use us, we have to stay focused on Him and put Him first. In all the little details. And see, you're walking down the mountain. Every step is a little detail in your life. Where do I put work? Where do I put family? Where do I put my children? Where do I put my money? What's more important? You know, I do marriage classes from time to time. And the first thing I say, here's the irony behind the, the goal or the secret behind a successful marriage is the person that is first in your marriage is not your spouse. It is God. Not your husband or wife. As soon as you put your husband or your wife first, your marriage is in trouble. Automatically. Here's the irony. You put God first in everything. Wife, you put God before your husband. Husband, you put God before your wife. As soon as you do that, you live it. Watch your marriage start to come together. If you truly put God first in every aspect, that happens with your children. Do you put your children before God? Oh, as a parent, I can say I've been there. Without even realizing it, all of a sudden you get caught up in, in all the things of being a parent and everything like that, and all of a sudden you forget, wait a minute, this is affecting my life with the Lord. You've got to put your life with God first. And you see, once we start to do that, our perspective changes. It's like walking down the mountain in a whole new way. We reach the valley where the waters flow. And the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. You see, when we reach the valley 
and we're ready to do the Lord's will, there's no other place that I'd want to be. To take all that he's given me, all that he's taught me, that I don't deserve but he has given me anyway, that's a beautiful and wonderful thing. Think about it. Think of all that God has done for you and all he's given you. If we're really thankful, don't we want to apply it? For the church, for our families, for our neighbors, for our co-workers, co-students, whatever it is, It goes beyond asking. It doesn't even require a response. We all know what the answer is. Today's song was actually one of the songs that we sang today, the one on the river, right? The river of God. If I can call up the, uh, the worship leaders, the river of God. Down the mountain, the river flows, and it brings refreshing wherever it goes. Through the valleys and the fields, the river is rushing and the river is here. The river of God is teeming with life. All who touch it can be revived. And those who linger on the river's shore will come back thirsting for more of the Lord. Up to the mountain we love to go to find the presence of the Lord. Along the banks of the river we run we dance with laughter, giving praise to the sun. Our life here on this earth needs to be focused on Christ. And it's so easy for us to come to church week after week and to forget our purpose, especially after we have gone through a storm and have come out of it or we've learned something or something great has happened in our life. But you see, we've got to keep going. In fact, after we've actually reached the mountaintop and achieved, just like the mountain climber said, you're only halfway there. You have to apply what you've learned in climbing the mountain. And so now, Every week when you come here, it's like climbing the mountain. You're going to go back home, back to work, back to school. You're coming down the mountain. Are you applying what you've learned in the climb? Are you focused on the peak, the apex of what that mountain was? Or do you go down the mountain blindly and come back every Sunday to just have another peak experience. We are called to climb. We're only halfway there. You're only halfway there today because the other half is what's happening this week, this afternoon, this evening, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Are you ready for what's to come? In the Lord's prayer, whatever his will is, be done, regardless of consequences. I'm going to leave you with this thought. I'm not going to call 
for an altar call, I'm not going to call for you to raise your hands. I'm going to ask you to do one thing. Stand right now with me. Stand. I want you to contemplate what is it that maybe you have left on the mountain. What have you left behind? I want you to take that and meditate on that this week. Take it to prayer. Take it to prayer this week. I was away these past couple of weeks and as I was walking around I came across this store and there was a sign in one of the stores. It was so appropriate. And this is what it said. It says, yesterday is history. Tomorrow, a mystery. Today, a gift. Today is a gift. Let's take the gift that God gives us every day and allow the mystery to just bring what it comes and live day by day just loving the Lord and walking with Him. Amen? Can we sing that song, The River? Amen?
sometimes you might think that we actually coordinate things up here, you know, like we plan out songs and sometimes we do. But the reality is when we actually prepare a sermon, anyone who comes up here, it's a spirit guiding us. And most of the music is prepared independently. I had no idea that we were going to sing this song today. Absolutely no idea. But God orchestrates things in a way that we don't understand. We don't have to be in control of everything. We don't have to know all the details. We just have to give, give what he has given to us to others. Share the love that he has given to us. Let him orchestrate the details. Show up. You see, the real, the real struggle isn't in the circumstances. It's in our response in the circumstance. Amen? I'm going to release you, but if you want to stick around and focus on the Lord with some worship before your week starts, as you descend the mountain, I invite you to stay and just worship God. But if you have to go, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the presence of the Spirit be with you. God bless you. Thank you. And for those who stay, let's focus on Christ and let's live every day as a new day, letting the mystery of tomorrow be where it stands. Amen? God bless you all. Lord, I need you all.